Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Top of the Morning, where we talk about sports and a whole lot more. I am Cameron, your host. On today's episode, I am joined by a special guest, former college basketball player for George Washington University, former coach and former sports broadcaster for next for networks such as ESPN, CBS, OLN, and more. And not to mention author of The Blue Team and number one released book in Christian Leadership, Faith and Spirituality, Men's Inspirational Spirituality and Psychology and Christianity, a memoir, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger, Peter Young. Peter, how are we doing today? I'm doing great, Cameron. Thanks for having me on your show. Of course. And I thank you for agreeing. I know we all have busy schedules and you're all the way in Montana. So I'm glad we find a time to, uh, 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 even time to meet. You bet. It's perfect. And Montana's a long way from where you were born, Ridgewood, New Jersey. How'd you find yourself all the way out in Montana? So I, I, uh, when I got done playing basketball, I had an old coach who lived in Denver. So when I moved out to Colorado and then was there about a few years. And then from there, from Colorado, moved to Idaho. So the Reader's Digest version of my life is I you know, grew up wanting to be the next Larry Bird, and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So then I got into coaching, and I was going to be the next John Wooden or Mike Krzyzewski, and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So then I got into sports broadcasting, and I was going to be the next Bob Costas. That didn't happen either. But um, <laughs> So I went from Colorado. Then I got my first TV job in Idaho. Mm-hmm. So that's why I moved to Idaho. I was there about 14 years. And then we moved up to Montana, just outside of Bozeman, mostly for there's a private Christian school we've been sending our kids to. So I've been here 13 years. Okay. How many kids you got? Five. Five. You start young? <laughs> Say what? Did you start young? No, my first was born at age 30. Oh, and really? So then the last one was born, I think it was, I had just, just about to turn 43. Wow. So we started late, actually. Wow. You're just cranking them out. Well, I was one of five. So I was the youngest of five boys. There you go. Um, are you, do you think you're going to get back into coaching ever or? Do you think that ship sailed? I don't, you know, I doubt it. I, uh, when I first got into coaching, I was, you know, 23. It was arrogant and cocky. I was probably a horrible coach because I thought I knew it all, which of course nobody does. Right. And then um, when I got into broadcasting, I did that for a long time. And I, I got back into coaching in my li- mid to late 30s. And I was just helping out like a volunteer coach on the high school level and loved it because I was much more mature. It was about the kids. It wasn't about me and my career. Really enjoyed it because you know, at the college level, Cameron, unless you're the head coach, you're doing a lot of administrative, mm-hmm. not doing a whole lot of coaching. Right, right. right. Low in high school, it's just about the kids and coaching. It's great. There's no recruiting or budgeting. And I loved it. So, you know, maybe one day on the high school level, yeah, I could see that happening, but never as a profession. Gotcha. And when you talk about broadcasting, I, I read you did some interesting thing. Rodeos? You oh, did- man. I- <laughs> I used to joke I was the I was the Bob Costas of sports nobody watched. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I'll give you the list if I can remember all. Like I've done, I guess my claim to fame would be I've done like almost thirty different sports. So I've done oh, rodeo, okay. and then I've done just bull riding, you know the PBR. Uh-huh. I've done rock climbing, wow. sailing, road cycling, track cycling, mountain biking, Nordic skiing, alpine skiing, beach soccer, track and field, football, basketball volleyball, adventure racing in the Sahara Desert. No kidding. Wow. Lumberjack events. Um, show jumping, which is, you know, like big money, you know, folks on their horses, you know, jumping over mm-hmm. obstacles. Mm-hmm. And I've, and there's probably half a dozen more that I've forgotten. Oh, um, speed skating. <laughs> so I've done, You've done it all. You've done it all. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I commend you because I honestly, the whole reason why I started going to college was for sports broadcasting. I was a communications major. And, yep. you know, in my mind, I was going to be the next, you know, whoever. <laughs> um, Stuart, uh, Stuart Scott. Stuart right? Scott. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but obviously, I'm here talking to you. So that didn't happen. You know, but well, where did you go to college? NC State. Oh, so okay. Started out Independence Community College in Kansas. And then uh, playing football, and then transferred to NC State. So I have a very thin NC State connection, but you know one of their greatest players ever, Derek Wittenberg. You know, threw up the air ball that Lorenzo yes. Charles caught in 1983 yeah. when they won the national championships. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the one year I coached college basketball at the University of Colorado, this is 30 years ago. Man, I'm old. Holy smokes! <laughs> um, but when I was on that staff. 
Derek Wittenberg was an assistant coach. Really? And uh, great guy. Great guy. You know, I, I hardly ever talked to him anymore because it's, again, 30 years ago. And then one of the other assistant coaches was Tom Betamarca, which, you know, nobody would know. But Tom was Valvano's assistant coach and uh-huh. was like his lead recruiter. So Tom would go everywhere and was tireless and, you know, and got all those guys for Valvano and, you know, was on the bench, uh, you know, when Whitbrick threw up the air ball and then they, they won the national championship. Yeah. Wow. How about that? It's a small world. Yep. Actually, small world. It's cool you mentioned Colorado. I actually spent um, a few months out in Denver, Colorado, playing professional rugby. Yep. Um, so, oh, really? Yeah. So uh, you may have heard of uh, the the stadium name is slipping me now, but the Colorado Raptors was a rugby team out there that I was playing for in 2021. Well, let's see. McNichols was the old arena. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. On Infinity the, Field. The there Raptors you go. Play? Infinity Field. Infinity Field. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I spent some time over there. So how about that? Some connections. Yeah. So you guys would play outdoors. It wasn't indoor rugby. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but let's get right into it. Let's get right into this episode. Uh, you have a okay. pretty interesting story. You, your, sure. your book, uh, say, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger, was about your experience being in a cult. Um, you spent, yep. if I remember correctly, about 20 years. And then you, you're, you have your famous line is you never know you were in a cult. You just know you were in one. So if you could just kind of take me through your experience of when you started, when you got into this cult and the things you experienced and then how you eventually got out. Sure. And I say you never know you are in a cult. You only know you were in one because cults come in all different shapes and sizes, mm-hmm. right? Big and small. We didn't really look like a cult. We didn't, you know, shave our heads or walk around town banging a drum. We didn't live in a commune, have sex with everybody. We didn't commit suicide. We did, did drink the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. But um, at their core, cults are undue mind control, right? So they start and end in the mind. So then the moment you can say to yourself, oh, my God, Cameron, you and I are in a cult, right? Then you realize this is bad. This is wrong. The mind control is starting to slip. It's starting to lose its effect because no one in a cult thinks they're in a cult. They're in something better or something more special. Mm-hmm. When I was in it, I didn't think it was a cult. I thought it was just you know a, a tight-knit community or family. So I married into it mm-hmm. uh, is the short answer. When I you know met the love of my life, Paige, back in 1996, I knew she had a weird family guru called Uncle Robert who mm-hmm. wasn't related to anybody. And um, yeah, I remember I, I was dating her about two weeks and I was 90% sure I wanted to marry her. Mm-hmm. But I had to meet her father and this Uncle Robert because she talked about him all the time. So then I knew if I married this woman, they'll be a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. So a few months later, I, I met the dad. A little weird. had some funny stories about that episode. And then I met Uncle Robert. Again, charismatic, interesting. I thought he was innocent, which I was wrong. So then we got married. And so for the first few years of our marriage, he was not... Uh, a huge, certainly didn't play a huge role in my life. It was always a huge role in Paige's life. I just didn't realize it. We lived in Idaho. He was in Southern California, but she would talk to him on the phone all the time. And then slowly but surely, just like the frog in the proverbial pot of boiling water, he, you know, kind of just took over little aspects of our life until he just controlled our entire life. He was our marriage counselor, quote unquote, and destroyed our marriage. So, you know, I really escaped or left the cult when I was kicked out. So Paige left me in 2017, just before our 20th anniversary. Well, a few months shy. And, you know, there was never any uh, infidelity, physical abuse, sexual abuse, anything like that. You know, I adored this woman and loved her and went along to get along. You know, I went along with Uncle Robert and all his crazy ideas to try and save my marriage. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you know, the cognitive dissonance that Paige would have felt of, you know, on the one hand, trying to, you know, stay married to a faithful Christian husband, me, that she doesn't love anymore, and adhere to and draw closer to her cult leader, Uncle Robert. So she chose him and left me. And then it got really bad, really ugly, really quick, which is kind of, you know, the second half, let's say, of the story and probably about half of the book because... um, it, it, it got really bad. And, and cults are emotionally abusive, emotionally and mentally abusive to children. Mm-hmm. And so when I kind of got kicked out, it, it, it was bad on the kids. Yeah, I, I believe that. And the yeah, I watch these Netflix documentaries all the time. And it's mainly on, let's say it would be Church of Latter-day Saints. 
and you'll just hear about all these things that they're doing. They're having these daily or weekly quote unquote church services and they're having rituals and they're having all this stuff. Then when you look at it from the outside in, it's like, how in the world do you not realize? But when you're, when you're in it, it's hard. It's easier said than done, right? Like when you're in it, it's, it's actually hard to say like, oh, this is, this is a problem. Right. So there's an interesting book that came out last year. It's by a gal named Daniela Young, no relation. It's a fascinating uh, concept or, or um, let's see, idea that she tackles, which was she did grow up in a, in a cult called the family. It's around the world, you know, sexually abused from a very young age, just a horrible cult. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. It's cult. Mm -hmm. it's okay. She escapes around high school age, comes back to America. She's an American, but she was raised overseas. And eventually, you know, goes to college and then joins the army. And then about a few days into the army, she's like, you know, as these drill instructors are screaming at her, did I just join another cult? And through the book, she comes to the conclusion, which I agree with her, is that, no, it wasn't a cult, but it was very strong culture. So mm -hmm. in other words, the point I'm making is you could have a very strong, dysfunctional culture, but it doesn't mean it's a cult. They're different. So there's probably a lot of really bad cultures out there. And there could be a lot of weird or odd religions. Doesn't necessarily mean they're a cult. Maybe they are. But to me, the biggest difference is, like if you check off the boxes for a cult, you know, you're going to have a cult leader. And that person will have, you know, again, boxes that every one of them have that you can check off. Narcissistic, makes all the rules, but none of the rules apply to him or her, has a grandiose sense of self, is often a gatekeeper to God. And, you know, exerts incredible coercive, manipulative mind control. And um, so then if you have, you know, large groups that are spread out around the country that have, you know, multiple leaders, mm, that may be a really bad culture, really sick and dysfunctional. I don't know if I would call those cults, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What are, if you don't mind sharing, what are some of the things that you had to deal with? in this cult experience? Sure. So I've, you know, I've got a lot of anecdotes. Some of them are just horrible. Some are kind of funny. So when I first met my father-in-law, you know, again, he's the, my hoping to be my future father-in-law. So I'm kind of auditioning, right? To be son-in-law. Right. And uh, I had just met him. I'd been dating Paige for about a month. And uh, I'm there over Thanksgiving. I go down the hall to use the bathroom. I'm a guy. So I stand up. I pee. I, you know, wash my hands, open the door. And there he is standing right outside the door. And he says, uh, he says, in our house, the men sit down to pee. Okay. Okay. He says, uh, he says because um, it prevents splashing, so it'll be cleaner. And then he said the line that I heard over and over again for the next 20 years, Uncle Robert taught me that. So if Uncle Robert taught you something, it was always above question or reproach. It was, this is what you have to do. Um, Uncle Robert also taught that casinos were the true churches in America. And I remember when I heard this, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be good. And I knew not to argue and question too strongly to anything he said, because questions are not allowed uh, of the cult leader. So um, the idea is that anybody can be blessed by the Lord if you go into a casino, rather, regardless of your race, your creed, your gender, your success in life, your bank account, etc. It doesn't matter. You can go in there and be blessed. And I'm always like, well, okay, but I don't see people worshiping the Lord in a casino. I see them worshiping money. Right. I see them desperate wanting money. Right. <laughs> he also never had a full-time job, so he called casinos his office. And I think that might have been partly because he and then Paige and my in-laws, who, of course, did everything he did, didn't want our kids to know that they were going to the casino to gamble, which they would do all the time. They live in northern Idaho. Pay to my in-laws. He lived in Southern California. So there's an Indian reservation right nearby that has got a casino. So they would go there all the time. They'd call it his office. So then, of course, you know, over the years in the Christian faith, there's the idea of tithing. So we would all tithe, but eventually we all tithe to him. So a friend of mine, after I got out, she was like, wait a minute, Peter, you guys all sent him money every month. And he gambled all the time. And I said, yeah, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound good, does it? Yeah, right. <laughs> So again, there was nothing physically abusive, nothing like, oh, Jesus, this guy's got to go in handcuffs. Just a lot of mental, emotional, spiritual manipulation, a lot of little stories like that. Probably the two worst things he did, Cameron, I would say, is number one, he taught that, you know, in order to discipline children, to raise children right, again, we had five, 
you had to crush them. You had to crush the will, crush the ego of the child. So that way that they could then obey their mom and dad and thus obey their heavenly father, the Lord, right? Well, it's just unbiblical. The Bible never says crush your child. I mean, that's just awful. Right. The analogy I give is like, if you want to prune your apple tree, so it's more productive, right? Well, if you crush the apple tree, you got to kill it. Right, right. <laughs> it takes patience and love and kindness of being gentle to prune it. And then the other thing you did that was just get unbiblical and purely wicked was no one was really saved unless Uncle Robert saved you. Right. So me, along with Paige, along with the parents, all the adults in there, you know, accepted Christ. You know, we turned our life over to the Lord, whatever you want to call it. We had a genuine faith in the Lord. But over time, Uncle Robert would make you doubt it and then reject it. And then you have to be saved by him. And again, a lot of cult leaders, that's what they do. You know, you have to go through that person. And so they become maybe not God, but certainly above you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there, there's an argument and I'm a believer in Jesus Christ myself. And I feel like there's an argument a lot of times when I talk to non-believers and they say that basically the story that you're saying now they almost feel that it's similar to that way in the modern day church, which if you ask me, I don't, I don't think so. But if you, if someone was to come up to you and say, I think the modern day church is not obviously not as extreme, but there's a pastor that you quote unquote have to go through in order to be saved, which obviously we know isn't the truth. You can go directly to Jesus, but if someone was coming up to you and say that, like, what would be your response to them? You know, there, I just finished a book called, um, well, it's about the word of faith fellowship in, I think it's Spindale or Spindale, North Carolina. So it's West of Charlotte. The church been around since the eighties. And I do believe it's a cult. Um, you know, they've been investigated you know, by the state of North Carolina, health and welfare. Also, I think the FBI has looked into them. And, um, you know, they had a leader and their practices, I believe, were completely unbiblical and they were physically abusive, mentally, emotionally abusive to these people. And, and the idea, again, if you left that church, then you were, of course, no longer saved. You were damned to hell on and on. Well, again, the moment that you put your own spin on it and deviate from the gospel, I mean, it's not the gospel at all. It's just whatever you made up. Mm -hmm. Let me relate it to my story, you know, with Uncle Robert and anybody else that uh, is going to lure people into a cult, they don't just start spouting nonsense and lies right away, right? Like they sound good. I mean, I don't think I'm that dumb. I didn't just believe some idiot. After all, Uncle Robert would read from the Bible. But then over time, you would put his little interpretation and spin on it. So that five, 10 years down the road, it was way off the true gospel. Or think about it this way. If you miss hit a golf ball by this much, right? Like eighth of an inch. 100 yards down the fairway, it's way off to the left or way off to the right. It's nowhere near the pit. And that's exactly what he would do. And so that can happen in Christian churches, which is to say that it is, you know, that particular person, that pastor or guru. It's not the gospel. It's not the Bible. It's somebody perverting it. Right. Right. And I agree. I wouldn't, couldn't say it better myself. When, so you, you were in this for 20 years. Yeah. And so was there any point where during those 20 years, you were constantly talking to Paige like, hey, we got to get out. Like, this is this is just, we got to go. We got to get far away from this. It's not right. Or was it just kind of one of those things where it was like, you just, you just don't know until you know? Well, really good question. So out of the 20 years that I was, you know, with her and, you know, involved in this, I would say I was only brainwashed. It truly was for two and a half years, three years, because for several years, I, I wanted nothing to do with the guy. He was annoying and, and I was very jealous of the role he played in my wife's life. You know, for the first few years of our marriage, I thought I was the best husband ever. She was the best wife ever. We were setting the bar for marriages. And then, but you know, over the time, the rose, you know, the bloom fell off the rose five, 10, 15 years down, in, uh, down the road. I realized that, you know, she adored and revered and loved him in a way that she didn't me. Mm -hmm. I do believe at times she did love me, but over the years that, that clearly stopped and she had a certain amount of respect for him. And, and, and I never had that in terms of really feeling like, wow, this is bad. Uh, this person is wicked. 
I think we can all remember where we were. Well, maybe you can't care because I don't know how old you are, but I mean, I can remember where I was on 9-11, right? You know, we were uh, way out in the middle of nowhere in Idaho uh, when we found out. But I had uh, grown up in New Jersey. You know, I had high school classmates who were widowed that day. I had high school classmates who got out of the building on time. I don't think I had anybody that died. My hometown had, I think, 11 people that died that day. So I remember that, you know, and that was kind of a, a big moment in my life. About a year later, we were in northern Idaho at Paige's parents' house. We'd go there all the time and have these conferences with Uncle Robert. So you and I came around to go sit down and, and discuss faith and religion, right? We'd have a, a talk, a cup of coffee, a get-together, whatever. With Uncle Robert, it was always a conference, which yeah. is basically a glorified way of saying we would sit around and uh, listen to this guy talk for hours on end. Yeah. Well, this one time he said, you know, uh, 80,000 people died on 9-11. I thought there was like 3,000. And then he started talking about how President Roosevelt was a Jew and Truman was a Jew. And I had Jewish friends growing up. I had Catholic. I had Polish. I had Italian. I had Greek. I had everybody. And, you know, we would always kind of make fun of each other. You know, it's nobody got too uptight about it, right? Right. You know, big deal. They'd make fun of me. I'd make fun of them. We were kids. Who cares? But this was different. And I remember being stunned and kind of scared, honestly. Like, wow, this guy is a raving anti-Semite. And I didn't know. This is three, four years into our marriage. So I remember telling Paige that night that um, I think this guy's a danger. I think he's, uh, we should have nothing to do with him. She was very concerned. She had a you know, concerned look on her face. And then we never really brought it up again. And I didn't pursue it. I didn't push it. I should have. I said, honey, <laughs> what are we going to do about this? And of course, you know, his theology and his uh, way of thinking, she and her parents uh, you know, bought all of it, hook, line, and sinker. And again, we were a very small cult. There were only about maybe 12 adults total, a few other people, but but not much, no other families. And so his, I'll try not to get too deep in the weeds of this, but if you have an idea about your Bible, you go back to Genesis, first book of the Bible. And there are these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Mm-hmm. And this is biblical, it talks about them. Jacob becomes greater Christendom, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. So they become, that's where all the Christians come from, supposedly, according to Uncle Robert. And then, um, Esau becomes Edom, and then Edom becomes the Edomites, which is modern Jewry. So then he feels like, because Jacob stole the birthright from Esau, Esau and the Edomites and the Jews have been trying to get it back for 2,000 years. So every war, recession, depression, you name it, is a Jewish conspiracy. So then over the years, I would always ask questions like, really? Where's the proof of this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you know? And of course, you have page of parents just believed it because he said it. Mm-hmm. Well, again, you know, if you ask too many questions, you get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly on the receiving end of his you know, diatribes. He would never answer the question. He would always question my intellect. I was too stupid to understand it. So to answer your question, yeah, about three, four years in, I thought, wow, this is really bad. But then over time, this made sense. That made sense. I started to get worn down, beaten up. It was exhausting trying to... Um, withstand the pressure of Paige and her parents and Uncle Robert to finally just succumb and say, yep, he's right. I'm wrong. He's the guru. I never really said it, but in a way that's what happened. Right. Right. And I'm sure that's what a lot of us do in a lot of different cases. It could just be relationships between boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, whatever may have you. Once you're, once you've experienced something so much, it's just easier to give in rather than to keep fighting. I totally understand it, that. It, it can be exhausting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So hindsight is always twenty twenty. So if you had, if you went back to that three, four year mark and knowing what you know now, what would you do? Hmm. Well, I always say hindsight can be twenty twenty. It's not guaranteed, but it can be twenty twenty because I truly feel, feel like the Lord opened my eyes and ears so that I can see the truth. And, and here's what I always say, Cameron, as long as Uncle Robert, whose real name is Robert Booty, um, and again, the funny thing is, like, he, he's this guy in his mid to late 70s, short, he's bald, olive complexion, jet black hair, he's kind of pudgy. And Paige and I are both, you know, typical Northern Europeans, tall, you know, she's got blue eyes. So he doesn't look anything like her. But as long as he had this role in her life, this authority in her life, our marriage was doomed. So if I had pushed it back then in that moment, she might have left me. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Things would have certainly been different. I don't think I would have convinced her to just up and leave him for me. At that time, we only had two children. The three other ones were to come later. But there's a a number of moments. 
So that moment in 2001, then a couple years later, or even before then, the story of the book, sorry, the title, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. I'll let you read it because uh, I think your audience will find it fascinating. That title comes from a dream that I believe the Lord gave Paige. And she would reference this dream all the time. It was life-changing for her. And she wrote about it. And then Uncle Robert interpreted it for her. And he turned it on its head. To me, the dream was to warn her about this guy in her life who was not who she thinks he is, which is, of course, Uncle Robert. Mm -hmm. And then I come into her life and I'm a tall man. I'm six foot five. And, you know, she spent the better part of our marriage unwittingly trying to prevent me from exposing Uncle Robert for who he was, a small cult leader who was wicked and who has now destroyed her life. And so, you know, I could have at, at that moment, you know, I would just met Paige a few months you know, earlier, um, had I seen the truth and then been able to say to her, listen, you know, this crazy letter that he wrote you, this dream that you had, and he turned it on its head, convinced her that she was the tiger, not saved, not a Christian, and needed Uncle Robert to save her. And from and from then on, really, our, our marriage was doomed. And we weren't, weren't even married yet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Lord works in mysterious ways. The reason I wrote the book and come on podcasts like this is to try and share the story to create awareness that little cults are out there and they're real easy to hide in society and you wouldn't know that they're around, but they are. Yeah, 100%. And so for anybody who would be listening to this who might be in a cult and not even know it, if they had to, if they were to ask you, what's one, just one key thing to look for, what would it be in order to know like, hey, this might be a cult? Right. You know, I, I would almost have to address it to people that aren't in the cult. It's the friends and family members who see the person heading into a cult. So Cameron, your uncle, your brother, your cousin, your college roommate, whatever it is, because there are red flags. And so the red flags would be that someone you know has broken off all traditional contact. So let's say they don't show up to cards on Friday night or the Rotary Club or Kiwanis or pick up basketball like you guys usually play or church or the Bible study. So they stop going to all these things. Then they stop calling or emailing or writing or texting. They break off all communication with everybody kind of very, very suddenly. And then they also have all of this wonderful praise for someone else, someone new, a pastor, a guru, whatever. They're not going to call them a guru, but whatever they are. And then they kind of start poo-hooing or um, speaking very uh, poorly about everybody and everything else. Those are huge red flags because when you isolate yourself, you become far more susceptible to a false teacher, false prophet, whatever you call them, a cult leader. Cults control people through paranoia, secrecy, and isolation. So, you know, the paranoia for us was the Jews are out to, to get us. All right, we, we better protect Uncle Robert. Mm -hmm. And the secrecy. But we can't tell anybody because the Jews are everywhere. So, you know, we got to keep everything secret. And then the isolation is key. You isolate that individual so that it no longer can talk to, like if you, Cameron, were like, buddy, what are you doing? This is crazy. Well, then they'll say, well, you can't talk to Cameron anymore. Cameron doesn't get it. Cameron is the danger, right? Which, of course, it's the cult leader who's the danger. Mm -hmm. so isolation is huge. Mm -hmm. And then I guess really briefly for the person who is, let's say, succumbing, falling into it, the truth never minds being questioned. The truth can always take questions and can answer them. But when you have somebody that doesn't like questions, gets angry at you for asking questions, that's a red flag. Yeah, agree. And Jesus welcomes our questions. And he, yeah. he's faithful in answering them. So that's that's very refreshing. Um, and you were a believer before you got married, correct? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I was 13. I was at a um, Christian basketball camp in upstate New York that the former general manager for the Dallas Mavericks, Norm Sanju, ran. It was like, the, it was so much fun. I loved it. And, you know, did I did I know all about Christian theology? No. You know, had I tithed and done this or that? No, no, no. Salvation is a free gift. You can't do anything to earn it. And you don't need a pastor or a guru to help you. It's a free gift. And so I look back on my testimony now. You know, what has the Lord done for me? Is it kind of messy and odd and ups and downs? Yeah. That's why I need a savior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not perfect. Yeah, none of us are. Um, and so yeah. when you, oh, first of all, you said upstate New York. What city? 
Well, it's called Speculator. It's a tiny little town up in the Adirondacks. And it's this Christian camp called Camp of the Woods. So it'd be like an hour north of uh, Cooperstown, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Okay, gotcha. Um, you said upstate. I was born in Rochester, New York. So that's why Oh, I okay. Asked. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if you go up to, let's say, Amsterdam, New York, you know where that is? Well, Albany. I so say you go to Albany, Albany. and then okay. go north and west like an hour. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Up there. Yeah, they they always joke about me and my family when we say we're from Rochester. They're like, "You're just from South Canada. That's all it is. It's not really New York." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, I'm like, all right, fine. I guess I'm not a New Yorker after all." Yeah, right. Um, so you got you you were a believer at 13, or did you get saved at 13? Yeah, okay. yeah. And then you went through this marriage, um, yep. and went through this experience. Did that ever thwart your view on Jesus? Were were you ever like? God, if if you're real, you wouldn't be allowing this. Like, where are you? This is happening, and I'm calling out to you, and like, you're not doing anything. Do that? Do those kind of thoughts ever cross your mind? No. And so, some people will say, "Wow, it's great that through all this, you didn't reject your faith." To which I would say <laughs> that it was never a thought, and and I wouldn't be here without it. There was clearly times where I doubted my faith. So I never doubted the Lord. I doubted myself. Now, again, that was because of Robert Booty, mm-hmm. Uncle Robert, which again was wicked. I mean, like, you know, we're supposed to have victory in Christ. But whenever we would go through this with, with Uncle Robert, it was anything but victory. It was yeah. anything but joy. It was the exact opposite. It was doubt and condemnation and fear and judgment. So I would always doubt myself. I never doubted the Lord. I doubted my ability because he told me he didn't think I was capable of receiving salvation. Mm-hmm. which is just absurd. Right. But uh, for a while, I believed him, yeah. which was awful. Yeah, yeah. And the Bible says that Jesus wants all of us to know him and all of us to come yeah. to salvation. So that's why also the Bible says test everything. So <laughs> right. people people are out here and they're like, yeah, so-and-so said this. I'm like, okay, did you read it for yourself? They're like, no, you might want to. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've worked in so many places and uh i remember i was working at a uh best buy and there was this girl who overnight wanted to practice um uh uh being a muslim and it just came out of nowhere i was like okay like cool whatever and then she was like reading the bible next to me and she was like uh she's like you're a christian right i was like yeah and she read, um, I can't think of the top of my head which one, it, what it was, but it was a story in the Bible and it was just wrong. Like it, it was so far left. And I said, you realize that's not what that means, right? It means ABC. And she's like, oh, right. I was like, who? Are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, we can, we can read the word of God and yet we can still, you know, if the Lord has not given us the ability to understand it, we're not going to understand it. Yeah. You know, getting back to that dream that Paige had, I remember discussing this with a good friend of mine who's brilliant, loves the Lord, knows the Bible so much better than I do. And he's like, listen, Peter, uh, you know, could the Lord speak to us in dreams? Sure, why not? He's God. He can do whatever he wants, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, you know, if you think that, you know, you've got a dream, the Lord told me to do this, right? You know, or like, you know, in the Mormon faith, well, the Lord told me to go do this. And if whatever that is doesn't agree with the Bible, that wasn't the Lord who gave you that dream. That was the pepperoni pizza you had last night that's speaking to you, right? <laughs> right. That, that wasn't the Lord. Right. And so that's why this dream that Paige had, you know, do I know for certain the Lord gave it to her? <laughs> I, I'm certain, but, you know, I, I can't prove it. There's a lot of what happened in that dream that did come true, but there's nothing in that dream that was unbiblical. In fact, I, it's it makes such perfect sense that the Lord did try and, and warn her. And because she did not listen, because I wasn't strong enough or whatever at that moment in my life to help her see it, that now, you know, we've got this, you know, mess. But that's the beauty, you know, of what the Lord can do. He can take any mess we make and use it for his good. Romans 8, 28. Yep. Yep. And there was a, there's a line by, um, if you know, the hip hop artist Lecrae, um, he said in one of his songs that uh, crooked sticks draw straight lines. And uh, yeah. it's something that when I first heard it, I was just like, wow, you know, because obviously us were born into an imperfect world. And we yeah. even when we go, uh, when we find Jesus and we're saved, we're still going to be imperfect. Right. But, you know, Jesus is going to keep us trying to straight and narrow if we listen to him. So even though we're a cricket stick, we can still draw a straight line, which I, I think about that frequently. 
and you know yeah. I, just, I, just, I love that um and so you through this experience and through your faith how did you say how would you say this has molded you into who you are now oh boy yeah, another good question. I, I mean, I would say, I wish I had a better line for this, but I always tell people I'm, I'm about a million times stronger than I used to be. So I don't look to the family guru. I don't look to Uncle Robert or Paige as to whether or not I said or did or wrote something that's accurate or correct, because I, for years, did that. You know, I relied on them, which is unbiblical. I just asked the Lord for wisdom. James chapter one, right? If anybody lacks wisdom, mm-hmm. ask. I'm paraphrasing. The Lord mm-hmm. give it to you, but don't doubt. So I've asked, and mm-hmm. I know he's given me wisdom. It's nothing to brag about. I just know he has. So I am much stronger now. I wish I could have learned this lesson a different way, um, but it is what it is. This is what I've been through, and um, he has brought me through this. I mean, there's no question. And so now really the struggle is trying to help my children see the truth. They still love their mom as they should. I'm not trying to change that. But when she left me, there's a thing called parental alienation where in high conflict divorces, and we did get divorced, where the one parent tries to alienate the kids from the other parent. And Mm -hmm. it was really bad. You know, Paige and Uncle Robert, you know, taught the kids that I was the devil, Satan, sorcerer, liar, abuser, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they believed her because they trusted their mom. And this was just awful. So it's a challenge for me to help my kids see the truth, see that, you know, what Uncle Robert did and, and does is wicked and evil and unbiblical. And uh, without trying to, you know, I'm not trying to have them hate their mother. But, you know, as long as their mother is under the influence of this man, that's a problem. It's very mm-hmm. hard to do that. So I just have to rely on the Lord and realize that parenting is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, yeah takes time. Yeah. How old were your kids at the time of the divorce? Well, the youngest would have been, you know, so when she left me, so the divorce, unfortunately, and again, I fought it, did not want it. I tried to save my marriage as hard as I could, but she already had her mind made up. Uh, when she left me, the youngest would have been just about six. And then the oldest would have okay. been freshman in college, 18. Then, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So definitely at those ages where they're still kind of like with their mom. It was confusing. That's, that's, it was so yeah. hard. I mean, just to show you how bad it was, it was, you know, when she mm-hmm. left, I was still convinced it was all my fault. And Uncle Robert was brilliant and Paige was brilliant and I'm horrible. And so we didn't tell the kids for about a month. She then told the kids what was going on. She had moved to, with her parents and took the three youngest with her. And so then I took a chance or took a time to talk to each one of the kids. And I told them, I said, listen, I'm, I'm sorry. I wish I could do it all over again. I take full responsibility. Uh, I love you and I still love your mom. Mm-hmm. So then she, when I told Paige this, she said, well, why did you tell the kids that you love me? I said, because it's true. Oh, she got angry. And that really started the ball downhill. She said, no, you never loved me. You only thought you did. So of course that was a big problem because if the kids know that daddy loves mommy, then why did mommy leave? Mm-hmm. Of course, Paige was not going to have the divorce be on her and her fault. Right. So that kind of started the unbelievable amount of hatred and anger directed towards me. And again, it came from Uncle Robert into Paige and into our kids. Right. Which parental alienation is emotionally abusive on kids. Yeah. Unfortunately, my, my brother had to deal with the same thing. So mm-hmm. I know what kind of toll it takes on um, a guy, you know, not being able to see his oh, kids. Oh, it's horrible. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I kind of want to pivot really quick and talk about sure. your book, your book, the blue team. Yeah. Um, main character, Thomas Connor, if I remember correctly, yeah. um, yeah. was loosely based off your experience playing at George Washington university. Yeah. Um, if you could just take me through what inspired the writing of that book and kind of just give me a brief, like you do on your YouTube channel, your two minute book sure. reviews. Um, sure. So I, I always tell people, you know, the blue team is a novel. It is loosely based on my life, but it, it, it's fiction because Thomas was really good and GW was really good. And I wasn't, when I played there, we weren't either. Um, <laughs> but the story within the story is that 
the greatest adversary for a basketball player or any athlete. It's not the guy trying to block your shot, the teammate that won't pass you the ball, or the coach won't play you, but it's your own mind. We are our own worst enemy, right? You've heard that line. Mm-hmm. And so when the Lord saves us, he saves us from ourselves. doesn't mean you're going to hit the game-winning shot, but it also helps you realize that if you miss it, the world's not going to come to an end. You have your identity in something greater than you. You play basketball, but you're not, you don't wrap your identity in being a basketball player, which is what I did as a kid. I wanted to be the next Larry Bird, and it was who I was. Well, no, I am a Christian. What I do is I play basketball, and there's mm-hmm. a difference there, and it's not just semantics. That's really key. And so then Thomas, through this you know fascinating season at GW, learns this lesson. It's very difficult, but he learns it on the way. And I had... Um, you know, a great time in college. And I had a lot of interesting characters. And I knew I had great characters and a great storyline. I just didn't know if I was going to be good enough to write the book. So I worked on it for 20 years off and on, mostly off, uh, until I finally, you know, gave birth to the blue team. Mm-hmm. And then was working on the sequel uh, when COVID hit. And that's when I wrote my memoir, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. It just came out of me. I wrote five, six hours a day. Mm-hmm. I'm done pretty quick with that one. So I am now working on the sequel to the blue team. So mm-hmm. the blue team, Thomas is a player. Now in the sequel, he will be a coach. So to be seen from the eyes of a coach. Okay. And uh, there'll be a different lesson to learn. Can, and I know on your website, it says we can expect that in 2024. Is that still accurate? Yes, that's the goal. That is the goal. You know, I, I'm kind of a grinder when I write. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't do a second draft. I do 20 drafts, 25 drafts. I, mean, I just keep going and going and going. So I would say I'm probably 75% done with the sequel. And yeah, I should have it done and out by next year. Because I love it. It's kind of like Tom Brady. You know, I remember when Tom Brady, somebody would ask him, uh, what's your favorite Super Bowl? And then he would say, the next one. I thought, well, how arrogant. I mean, come on, dude. But, <laughs> you know, well, he won seven of them. So, right. um, but, so I guess he could get away with it. But when somebody would say to me, well, what's your favorite book? It's kind of like the one I'm working on. Like, I love the two books I've written and published. Mm-hmm. But now I'll get up in the morning. I get up early when I'm disciplined at 530 and I'll write for an hour. And I'm, I'm immersed in the story. I'm with Thomas and Janae, the main characters. And it's great. Like, I literally am in that world. And so that's where my focus is on that book I'm working on. So I love the story. I can't wait to get it out there and have people read it. For sure. And I'll definitely link these in the bio and hopefully my, all my listeners yeah, will, you. will uh, you know, take the time to read that. Um, and your, I mentioned earlier how you do your two minute book reviews on YouTube. Yeah. So do you just love to read and you just love to tell people about books or like what, what inspired that? So I love to read. So um, I remember I took a writing class in college and I never thought I would be a writer. I love telling stories. So as a sports broadcaster, that's what a good play-by-play guy does, right? He tells the story of the game, of the athletes, not of himself, but what he's watching. And so I had a great mentor uh, when I was with OLN, the Outdoor Life Network, a guy named Rick LaCivita. And he was a producer for the Olympics, World Series, Monday Night Football. So he helped me really become a better storyteller. So I love telling stories. But I remember in college, I got uh, two pieces of advice that were great. Number one, write what you know. Sounds mm-hmm. trite and simple, but you know, I'm not going to go write about Roman aqueducts, okay? Right. <laughs> I'll right. write what I know. But I'm not going to go write about horses. Um, and then number two, if you want to be a great writer, you have to be a great reader. Those are the two bits of advice that are very simple. And I love reading, and I love the stories uh, that I get to engage in when I read. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a lot of the stuff I do on social media, it was really just to promote my writing, to promote my books. So I love the two minute book reviews and I've got over 80 of them. Go to my website, you know, subscribe. I keep trying to, to, to put them out there, but all of that was really done to try and, you know, promote. And I hate to do it, but you have to do it. You got to promote your brand. I mean, you know, you kind of promote your brand. It's as mm-hmm. awkward and uncomfortable as it is, you know, to promote yourself. Yeah. You got to do it. Yeah. So, so all of that is to, you know, get people to, uh, you know, kind of be familiar with me and my storytelling. For sure. For sure. Um, well, that's good. And then, so your experience at George Washington as a player, what would you say was your best experience or your most fond memory being a player there? You know, I think anybody who's listening will immediately nod when I say this. You know, do I remember, you know, uh, the statistics from this game or that game? 
Not really. I do for a few. I remember the guys, the buddies being on the team. I remember being on the bus or in the airplane or in the locker room, laughing my butt off at the jokes, right? And just being a friend and a teammate. That's what I miss. Those are my fondest memories. I will say for my, I was there five years, so I redshirted one year. I, I didn't play a lot. I had about a dozen really good games. I had one really good weekend at Stanford with the, um, they have a Christmas Invitational every year, and I had a good game against Vanderbilt, and then I had a good game against Stanford. That was probably my best weekend ever. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I did a lot of, you know, sitting on the bench and yeah. doing that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. in my time. But, you know, just the lifelong uh, friendships. You know, I since I moved out to Montana, you know, most of my old teammates are back east, but I could run into one of them at the airport or wherever, and it would be like we were just practicing yesterday. Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, I was coaching high school football in 2019 and I had been away from sports for a while and people thought I was crazy when I said this, but when I walked to meet the head coach, I had to walk through the locker room and they're in, right in the middle of summer camp. So, you know, it smells, it's, it smells, <laughs> right? Uh, and so I'm walking through the locker room and I go and when I start telling um, the girl I was dating at the time, she was like, what did you like about today? And I said, the smell of the locker room. I was like, I miss that so much. Yeah. And she was like, doesn't it stink? Like, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. it just, yeah. it brings back so many memories. Um, and, you know, I played college football independence and then I played semi-pro football and then I played professional rugby. And, you know, I can agree with what she said. I remember all the people and I remember all the conversations, not all yeah. of them, but I remember a lot yeah. of the conversations I had. And I remember how I felt in certain moments during the season and i remember how certain people on the team made me feel and those are the things that you're going to take with you regardless of of where you go and how long it's been so i can i can definitely agree with that and i wish we would have been better my last year at gw we had mike jarvis was our head coach so mike jarvis did really well at GW. Then he went on to coach at St. John's. I know it's been a long time but he was he was fairly well known so my last year we we were pretty good and that's one of the things I miss about sports broadcasting. Same thing. You're part of a team. So there's you know, the play-by-play, then the color guy, then the producer, the director, the cameraman. And we're like gypsies. You know, we, we fly home, and then the next weekend we all fly to Idaho or California or Colorado, and we do a game together. And uh, you're part of a team. And anytime you're part of a team, it's just – it's fun. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, the camaraderie, the relationships, the, the knowing that somebody's in this with you. Yep. You know, that you're not yep. alone. Definitely. I agree. So after you finish this sequel of the blue team that is scheduled to come out in 2024, what's next for you? Well, it will be a trilogy. So, um, and I never thought I would do this when I first wrote the blue team. I never thought I'd write more than one book. I knew I had a good story and I wanted to tell it. Now I love the process. Now I love writing books. So again, the blue team would be from the eyes of a player. And then the sequel, which I don't have a title yet, will be from the eyes of a college coach. So Thomas is now a college coach. And then the last book in the series will be from the eyes of, it's the same person, still Thomas, but he will be either high school or college, I haven't figured out, he will be coaching his boys. So Mm, it's kind of from the eyes of a father. So in the blue team, Thomas's father has a very important, pivotal and symbolic role. I'm not going to say any more because I'll give it away. Mm -hmm. But... He plays a very important role. And the father-son relationship in the blue team is crucial to the book. And now it will come full circle where Thomas will be the father watching his kids play. Gotcha. So that's definitely something. And in, in many ways, it mirrors my life too, because you know, again, I coached, I played, and now I'm a dad. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely something to look forward to. That that's exciting. Yeah. Um, thank you. So in wrapping up. For the listeners who are listening, how could we best support you going forward with this new book and for the trilogy? Oh, thank you. Well, both of my books are available on, on Amazon, uh, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger, and also the Blue Team. Uh, you could sign up. Uh, you go to my website at authorpeteryoung.com. You can sign up for my monthly newsletter. I do updates about my writing, but I also offer other stories that I like to tell. And then go subscribe to my YouTube channel. Again, I've got, I think, over 80 uh, 80 videos on there. I'll tell you one funny story because I love telling stories. This is how we learn, right? Like the Bible yeah. has parables. They're stories, right? This is how yeah. we get ideas and 
and important themes that we want to share through stories. 100%. So again, I live in Montana, right? Like, I don't know if you folks would be able to see this, but you know, Cameron, you know, there's like antlers, heads, you know, mounted on the wall behind me, right? So, you know, uh -huh. I live in this, in this Western culture and there was a guy there that um, his kids went to the <clears> same <throat> private Christian school that my kids went to and it was during the summer and, and he knew that I hunted and I know he hunts and he wanted me to help teach kids how to shoot. And I'm like, Greg, you know, but when I go shooting, you know, I, I'm in, in the woods and I use buckshot. I mean, I'm not like a very good shot, right? I shoot deer every fall, big deal. Like, no, come on. He was like, what are you talking about? I really want you there to help out. I'm like, nah, I, I, I'm very good at it. So finally, after like five minutes, he's like, okay, he just kind of gives up and, and says, never mind. So then like a week later, I show up at the gym again at the high school where my kids go to. And there in the gym is this guy, Greg, who I had this conversation with. And he's got like 50 kids there and he's working on them shooting a basketball. And I thought he wanted me to help teach kids how to shoot a rifle. So then I go to the gym. I'm like, Greg, I thought you wanted me to help teach kids how to shoot a gun. And he laughed and we both laughed and laughed and laughed. So just, you know, stories like that where we can learn about how important communication is, right? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. had no idea he wanted me to help teach kids how to shoot a basketball. He probably thought, what is Peter thinking? Why won't he help out? Because I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> the importance of saying what you mean from jump. That's right. And, and that's not right. Leaving, yeah. That's so anyway, that's, that's on my YouTube channel. And, and um, so, yeah, thank you. That'd be great. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, that is it for me. So I'm just going to take this time to extend my appreciation for you for agreeing to uh, coming on here and talk to me about your life and uh, just sharing some stories about the things you went through and everything. And a uh, big shout out to podcastguest.com that was able to connect us um, right. for this. And they'll be featuring me on their newsletter on Monday, excitingly enough. Um, so that'll be something to look forward to for listeners. And if you want to check it out too, you can go ahead and do that. Um, Great. But yeah, so I really thank you. You're probably the first guest. No, you are the first guest that I have who I did not know before. So it's, okay. it's good. Cool. It's good to talk to somebody different, somebody new and get a new perspective on just things and just life. Yep. Yep. We will, we all have stories to share. And I always tell people at the end of my talks, when I speak publicly about my books is that, um, you know, we, we all have stories and I encourage you, you, the listener, you Cameron to tell yours because our stories are important and that's how people who are younger than us can learn from our successes and mistakes. So thanks for having me on so I can share my stories. Of course. And you never know who these stories are going to help, right? Somebody right. would be listening to this and be like, hey, this helped me. I can now get away from whatever toxic situation I'm in. Right. So that's what we hope for. So with that being said, that is it for me. Um, if you have anything else that you want to add, just thank you. Appreciate being on the show, Cameron. Good job. Of course. Of course. And thank you again to all my top of the morning listeners. Top Until next morning, time. Top of the morning. 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 Hold on.